The following podcast is a live recording of a radio show first broadcast by Fresh FM with assistance from New Zealand On Air. Fresh FM is a community access media station based in Te Tauihu, the top of the South Island, New Zealand. If you or your group would like to know more about how you can have a program on our station, please contact us. Visit our website freshfm.net for our contact details. What would you do if you knew you were going to die or that someone you loved was going to die? Well, guess what? You are and you do. No mai hari mai and welcome to Death Walker's Guide to Life, a euphemism-free show that deals with everything about death and dying you wish you knew but were afraid to ask. In it, we'll explore together how thinking and talking about death can help you live a life without regrets. Ko Kerry Sunderland Toko Inua. My name is Kerry Sunderland and I'm the host and producer of the show, which is first broadcast on Fresh FM in Titoihu, the top of Aotearoa, New Zealand's South Island, and then available around the world on many of the major podcast platforms. Deathwalker's Guide to Life is produced with the support of the Tasman District Creative Community Scheme, so big thanks to them. And if you'd like to find out how to get involved or wish to support the show in other ways, please go to the website, which is deathwalkersguidetolife.com. Kia ora and thank you for joining me for Episode 7 of Season 2 of Deathwalker's Guide to Life. In today's show, I'll be speaking with Dr Jackie Bailey, who is an independent funeral director, civil celebrant, ordained interfaith minister and writer who has recently released her debut novel, The Eulogy. But before I kōrero with Jackie, it's time for our first bookend, Death in Print. This week, I would, of course, like to introduce you to the eulogy, which is Jackie Bailey's debut novel. It's described as an autofiction novel, which is another way of saying autobiographical novel. Essentially, this means that the protagonist or lead character is modelled after the author, and the central plotline also mirrors events in his or her life. It's a term that's used to very clearly distinguish a story from being a memoir or autobiography. And we'll find out why Jackie Bailey decided to do this very soon. In the eulogy, the author calls her protagonist Kathy Bradley, and the story begins when Kathy returns to her hometown of Logan in southeast Queensland, just after her sister Annie has died, after an extremely long illness following a diagnosis of a brain tumour when she was a child. When Kathy arrives in Logan, she sleeps in her car. We soon learn she has driven overnight from Sydney to help plan her sister's funeral with her five surviving siblings. More intriguingly, the author reveals she is running from a kidnapping charge, has blocked her husband's number on her phone, and has a container full of sleeping pills in her glove box. So from early on in the book, we know this isn't going to be your average grief story. We're going to travel via a circuitous route of mystery and suspense. It's obvious that there are some very complex family dynamics at play. Kathy's relationships with her parents are difficult and she's estranged from most of her older sisters. But her love for her sister Annie is undisputed. Kathy is charged with writing Annie's eulogy and as she does so she reflects on her life, the impact of her sister's diagnosis on her family members, the reasons her mother and father became the dysfunctional parents they were and are today. In telling the story, the author explores race, disability, trauma, poverty and abuse. The eulogy is a compelling but not always easy read. 
The strained family dynamics often manifest in a slightly bitter tone from our narrator. But as we reach the conclusion of the book, there is redemption. As Jackie Bailey writes in her thank you note at the back of the book, her sister taught her how to love. You're listening to Death Walker's Guide to Life. Coming up, I'll be talking with the author of the eulogy, Jackie Bailey. Now it's time to welcome my guest on today's show, Jackie Bailey, who is an author, independent funeral director, civil celebrant and ordained interfaith minister. She runs Jackie's Funerals, organising all aspects of funerals and memorial services, including arranging burial or cremation, offers spiritual care and advice and writes regularly. And we're going to be chatting about how Jackie juggles all those different roles very soon. So uh, welcome to the show, Jackie. Kia ora. Thanks, Carrie. Kia ora. <laughs> Where I am, we unfortunately don't learn our local First Nations languages just yet in school, but hopefully it'll come. Um, and I want to acknowledge that I live and work on the traditional lands of the Wadi Wadi people of the Darawal Nation and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. Thank you for doing that. I really love the increasing use of the acknowledgement of country in Australia. It seems to have almost started in literary circles and writers' festivals a little bit and maybe some other art, arts and cultural events more so than elsewhere, but it's great to see it happening. Yeah, for sure. It's definitely um, very strong in the arts in the arts industry, which is my where I've done a lot of my work, and it's, it is beautiful to see because First Nations arts and culture is it's more than just putting on a show really, isn't it? It's yeah. like central to the identity of... of this country and who we who we should be yeah who we it's are. amazing I'm if you didn't know I'm an Australian too so that's why I really appreciate it over there yeah my first question is in response to an article you were asked to write for The Guardian a few weeks after the book came out in June and it opens with the following words in life my sister taught me how to love in death she made me want to fix the funeral industry. So I'm just wondering if you could unpack this a little for our listeners, please. Um, yeah, no worries, Kerry. That's um, that's a super pithy headline, which I wish I'd come up with, but I didn't because I have no sort of sub-editor copywriting skills. My form is definitely long form. <laughs> so, but, um, but yeah, it basically sums up like the before and after in a way of, of my life in the last Oh, I guess not for the last 45 years, really. Um, my sister, Alison, lived with um, a brain tumour for most of her life um, from when we were, we were little, when we were kids. And, um, and our relationship is really the subject of my novel, The Eulogy, which is autofiction, which basically means 70% true, 30% mm. made up, really, I guess. Anyway, so... Um, so when and she died about five years ago um, after a long sort of deteriorating degenerative condition. Um, and when she died, she, uh, my family and I, we did the funeral and I think we did a really good job, pat on the back for all of us. And it made me want to do that for other, pe- other people because... Um, We'd had, I mean, I'd had other experiences with the funeral industry and including the ones for my sister, actually. Um, we we did a beautiful job, but the company that we hired just was kind of gouged us and I think does that to a lot of people and really made me quite angry. Um, 
So I kind of, after that, went and trained as an interfaith minister and in the funeral funeral work that I do now because I was pretty determined um, to not make anybody else go through that side of things at such a vulnerable period of time. Yeah, absolutely. When with you said you the family did a good job, so does that mean you had quite a lot of control over the decisions that were being made, or would you have liked to have more control working oh, with I a think, more conventional um, funeral director? Yeah, yeah. I think we because my dad had died twenty odd years beforehand. We'd been through it before, and that had been, um, you know, we'd gone through all the annoying side of it then as well for the first time so this time around you know I was older and we were all a little wiser and just a lot pushier <laughs> so, <laughs> so you know we we got a coffin that we could decorate ourselves and my sister one of my sisters went and picked it up because you know the funeral directors um, just didn't do what they're supposed to do which is make it easy for you at times like this it mm. seemed to they seemed to kind of put obstructions in the way a little bit um so yeah we were just a bit pushier we just Mm. knew what we wanted to do for my sister and and we we did it (laughs) so I mean Um, they're sorry go ahead no no I was just going to say and after that um when I came back home I live in Wollongong in New South Wales and um tender funerals which is a not-for-profit funeral funeral movement really down here in Port Kembla um, is not far away from where I live. So I got involved with them not not long after my sister died, wanting to know more about what else you can do. And there was a whole lot more that, than I realised actually um, and wanted to be able to offer that to other people. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I understand that I remember when I was doing some research a few years ago that something in excess of 90% of um funeral directors, funeral companies in Australia were owned by sort of one big conglomerate, American conglomerate, um, whereas Tender Funerals is a really communi- community-based organisation, isn't it? So people, you know, who come in. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Mm. That's right. In, mm. um, Invocare owns, I think it's a third of the funeral market in Australia, which includes the crematoria themselves and, you know, the burial grounds. And oh, is it only a third? I thought it was much, much higher than that. Yeah. Oh, it's probably higher when yeah. it comes to the funeral directors themselves. Uh, yes. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. yeah. It's, and I didn't know that either, Kerry, mm. until, um, until I started to, you know, pay attention after my sister died um, and I realised that Invocare owned the company that we had used, um, which we didn't know at the time because you don't know because it's all kind of branded in a particular way to make yeah. you think that it's a local thing and oh, or, or, it was really really an uh out, outraging outraging yeah. enraging yes <laughs> I was outraged it enraged me yeah 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 okay yeah so so that's you know you wanted to become a different sort of funeral director so tell us why and how you were ordained as an interfaith minister and what exactly is an interfaith minister for those of well, our listeners yeah. who don't know. <laughs> oh, no, fair enough. I don't, not many people do know what an interfaith minister is. Um, it's a, so um, I studied a Masters of Theology through, um, through an institute called the New Seminary, which is a seminary based over in the States in, in New York. 
um, and it's the world's oldest interfaith seminary, which basically means it goes back to, I guess, the 1960s or so, um, when it emerged actually as part of the African-American civil rights movement, because um, as, as you probably know, faith is, is quite important in America in general, but also as part of politics and was also used to justify slavery in parts. You know, parts of the Christian Bible have been used to justify all sorts of things, including slavery um, of, of black Americans. And so the interfaith movement rose up in response to that. So very much as part of a kind of social activist type of agenda that it had. And um, by the time that I attended and did my Masters of Theology there and was ordained through them, um, it had very much embraced the um, the idea of spirituality um, and spiritual service in a secular context. So spirituality outside of religion and outside of institutions, um, which I think resonates, well, certainly resonated with me because I'd long been looking for something to fill the gap that um, my my childhood Catholicism had left me when I left that faith. Um, but I'd never really found quite the right thing to replace it. So this, um, I think after my sister died, I had the the motivation and also the spiritual space, I guess, to to start looking for that thing to to replace it. Um, Because my faith had been all mixed up with my sister as well and her illness. Um, Yeah, so, so I did that course and the ordination program. So you study all the world's religions as part of the course and then um, in parallel with that, you uh, kind of undergo, I guess, spiritual reflection and direction with, with, the, with a mentor who helps you to develop your form of service in the world, um, spiritual service. And for me, that's, that was immediately about funerals and death work. Mm-hmm. So can you define spiritual? Like... If I mean, I, I know your main character in the book doesn't believe in God, and I believe I've heard you say that you personally don't in other interviews. So is, is, is spiritual still a belief, though, in a higher power or somebody or something outside of ourselves? Or how, how would you decide, define the, the word spiritual? Yeah, it's a really good question, Kerry. Um, it's not, for me, it's not about belief in anything. Um, it's it's more about embracing mystery and possibility and the um, possibility that hope is a reasonable choice. So by that I mean that living your life as though it's meaningful is, is a reasonable decision to make. Um, when I was growing up Catholic, it was all about faith and you had to believe in a certain set of factoids um, in order to go to heaven. And that was a really, really immature and unsophisticated approach, even to the Christian theology, which I've later learned a lot more about, actually, as an interfaith minister. Um, and certainly not the way. It wasn't conducive to, for me to living a full, fully engaged um, spiritual life. When and I, When I talk about spirituality, I talk about um, what I what I mean is the choice to live as though life is meaningful, and so for me that means embracing and or at least acknowledging mystery, um, treating hope, living hopefully, 
um, as a reasonable choice, um, acknowledging that interconnection with all other beings, including inanimate um, and animate, um, is kind of like a law of physics almost. Yes. <laughs> like relational yeah. being is just normal and core. Um, and for me it's also about acknowledging, well, like, at least allowing for the possibility that the universe that we live in is uh, is benevolent towards towards life, not necessarily human life, but life as um, and creation mm. and kind of constant generativity. So, yeah. Anyway, so that's what I think spirituality is. It's allowing for these possibilities and then living as though life is potentially meaningful so a big part of that is obviously being uncomfortable I mean comfortable with the unknown <laughs> not uncomfortable. oh absolutely yeah yeah, yeah. do you know the yeah. author um Jeff Brown he has recently I think in the past four years or so kind of rebranded himself in a way as a, a grounded spiritualist uh so that's you know sort of making that connection between still but you know being open to the possibility of the unknown but also being grounded in in uh in the in evidence <laughs> in a way oh right yeah yeah, yeah same got some interesting yeah things to i say. think similar sort of um yeah similar sort of vibe probably because um yeah i mean i'm certainly not anti-science totally embrace science but i am anti um you know that really kind of polemical atheist type of dialogue that happens with some writers oh, yeah. like Richard Dawkins. Yeah. <laughs> it's just really narrow and I just don't feel like they're asking the right questions. Um, I mean, there's no answers. We don't know the answers, but it's all in the questions. And, I mean, Gautama Buddha said this as well. He's like, Gautama Buddha said, um, you know, when people, students would ask him what happens after you die or what's the meaning of life or whatever, and he'd be like, you know, that's not useful. <laughs> that is not useful as a question. Like what I know is um, how to address suffering mm. now, here and now. Mm. That's what is useful and I'm going to stick to that. And I just think, yeah, that's so super practical. I mean, it's not useful to ask, is there a God? Isn't there a God? Like who knows? No one will ever know. That's right. And it's not really even relevant to the question of how do I live now? Yeah, yeah, a good life and connect with our other beings in this in the here and now yeah so let's go to you as a writer now I believe you started writing the story that eventually became the eulogy and well, a much earlier version of it when your sister Alison was still alive and I think you were writing it at, a, at the time as a memoir is that right yeah that's right Kerry yeah, yeah I started it 10 years ago um just after my baby was born after I gave, it's funny to say it like that, after I gave birth to my child, to my baby. Um, sorry, I was just, it just struck me how we talk about that in the third person as if it happened to. <laughs> I was very involved in that process. Yes, so, I bet you were. Yeah. yeah, after I had my daughter, um, I started it as a PhD and I did start it as memoir. Um, mm. And then after oh, after a couple of years, my sister was still alive, but after a couple of years um, I decided to fictionalise it. Um, that was on the advice of some of the readers I had through mm. the PhD program because it just gives you kind of a bigger uh, bigger canvas and mm. more safety as well to deal with some tough stuff. Yes, um, and there's plenty and of tough after, stuff in your book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there mm. is. There is the clues in the title, yeah. I reckon. That's what I would say. 
yeah. yeah. But then after she died, um, that's when I restructured it around a fictional guide to how to write a eulogy um, because I gave her eulogy. And I think after she died, um, that framework was, um, you know, top of mind, I guess, um, especially once I started doing funerals um, and listened to and wrote and helped people with writing eulogies. Um, it just gives you this big, um, yeah, a bigger sort of scaffolding to, to support all sorts of themes and that uh, of a life which come out in every person's eulogy. Actually, it's super interesting to help people through that process because it's the first time they start storifying their person. Mm. Um, unless they're is, memoir writers when they've already. Unless they're, yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, and they've been doing it for years, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so um, Alison's death in 2015 after a very, very long illness. That inf- so that influenced the way you wanted to tell the story. I, I'm wondering too, did it influence your – there are parts in the book where you are essentially writing, addressing Alice uh, – well, the character in the book, but in the, in the second person and you're writing um, and they're just full of love, those, those moments when you're talking – uh, when your narrator is talking to her sister, <laughs> I have to keep remembering this is autofiction, not memoir. <laughs> um, so, was that one one of the things that happened after um, yeah. Alison died? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. It is Carrie, um, and like every writer has probably been through that process of trying all the voices. You know, you try first person and third person and close third person, whatever, and you just try everything, and then second person. Um, it was never, I never intended to write in second person because it's really uncommon actually, um, but it just made sense after she died in my actual life. Um, just made perfect sense that in my, in my book, Kathy, the protagonist, was speaking to her sister, um, Annie, who had just died um, because, and that's kind of what, when I first started to write it, um, I'd always intended it as as a kind of love, not so much a love song or love letter, but a love lament for my sister. Um, so, yeah, it just made total sense after she had actually died to write it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and hopefully the, anybody who reads it, um, you know, enters into that intimate space between two sisters when they read it. That's what I hope anyway. I think they do. I had a look at Goodreads and some of the reviews recently and there were certainly a couple of people who said they felt like you were speaking to them too. So I think. Oh, that's yeah, good. Yeah. I've, I can't look at Goodreads. It's like <laughs> I know. field. Yes. So, <laughs> that's, that's nice to know. Thank yeah. You. Yeah. <laughs> You've got some great, great reviews on there. So was the fact that you went from – writing a memoir to writing a novel did the did the ty- did, did the label autofiction feel like a bridge between those two things for you i'm just really interested in in why you've decided to actually kind of label it with that title or maybe it wasn't even your choice maybe it was a publisher who did it but when often many novels are inspired or drawn from an, the author's life anyway so it's quite a you know po- you know pro- proactive decision to to say i'm going to call this um, autofiction. Yeah, it's a good, good question. I think for me, for me, I called it autofiction um, because there is so much of my actual heart in this book, 
and and lots of I mean all authors put their hearts in their books but I guess I mean also drawing on so much of my own truthful stories or my version of, of truthful stories from my family and my sister and I so um, it was important to me to sort of acknowledge this is this a lot of this is real and a lot of this is from my life but it's not entirely um straight up memoir so there's a couple of reasons for that I guess one was um political in a way because I'm I'm Eurasian so I'm sort of regarded and treated as and right as a writer of colour here in Australia um and I really didn't want to offer up um another piece of exotic memoir or trauma porn or that's that sort of like that, I didn't want my book marketed in that way. Yes. Um, but at the same time, it was important for to me that people know that this is real. This is uh, a true Australian story. So, so I guess that's why I landed on autofiction. And also, autofiction is um, something that I think is a safer space for for writers of color and for people. Um, who any of any race or background who've had to live or deal with all sorts of trauma in their lives. Um, and then there's the academic side, of course, because I did it as part of a PhD and there's um, a whole bunch of theory and research that I read um, as I was doing the PhD about the way that people approach books as readers and I, um, and I wanted people to approach my book as they would approach a novel which is quite with quite an open heart and open mind. Um, interesting. To it. Yeah. yeah, it yeah. is very interesting. So when I read that, I thought, hmm, yeah, that's what I want. <laughs> <laughs> but then, of course, you open yourself up to um, the danger of being interviewed by a fellow writer like me who wants to go through every part of the book and go, is this true? Is this not true? <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. Yeah, you're certainly not the only one. But I, um, can, yeah, you, can you broadly describe which bits you've fictionalised, just in broad um, terms? Well, I mean, so the, the main narrative contemporary kind of arc um, of Cathy on the run and, you know, with from, a kidnapping charge, and yeah, that's yeah. Sort of like not true. Okay, I, I never that didn't happen to me. I yes. never tried to kidnap anybody. Um, so that that is straight up plot device stuff. Um, mm -hmm. or not straight up, like it's also extremely emotionally true for that your character's journey. Yeah. Like, if you condense your journey with um, truth and grief and family trauma, then you probably do end up with a kidnapping charge and stuff, you know what I mean? Like if it was condensed into the space of a couple of months, um, which is what I did for the protagonist. I took all of that that for me took years to process and smushed it into a couple of months' time in her in her timeline. Um, yeah, and again, that came from the advice of this was Anne Enright who wrote The Gathering. She's an Irish writer and... Um, she did a masterclass at my university and I love her her work um, to the point where I'd taken her book a winning novel and broken it down into a spreadsheet um, <laughs> and showed it to her actually in the workshop and um, and she was she was very polite <laughs> 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 probably terrified I'm not sure but um 
Yeah, she. I, I was talking in my in that workshop um, about. You know, I had this character and her relationship was a bit on the rocks and la, la, la. And she was like, well, why, why aren't they on the brink of divorce? Like, why aren't... She just said, take the drama and push it as mm. far as you can. And you can always pull back, but just do that because you're in the mythopoetic realm here with um, taking people's um, fears and desires and, and all those sorts of things and keeping them real but real enough so that the reader can relate to them but filling it up with drama so that the so that the reader is occupying that um mythic space when they read yes um yes. yeah anyway it was really interesting and it really broke me out of that it has to be true kind of it has to be exact so in answer to your question yeah the that sort of drama is not you know, autobiographical. Um, but most of the other stuff, the childhood and, you know, that sort of stuff, um, you know, scenes will still have fictional elements to um, to focus the reader. Yes. Um, and focus the emotion. But, yeah, that's largely true. Okay. My good. version of the truth, Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So of course, because I'm one of seven kids, so it's my version of the truth. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. Exactly. So I don't want to obviously give away any spoilers, but you do pose um, two questions on the back cover, and they are, um, or the, the the back cover reads: Kathy wonders, and she has also always wondered, did Annie get sick to protect her, and if so, from what? So again, I'd like to unpack that a bit because, firstly. What role do you think beliefs and intentions play in creating illness and disease? Because it's a topic I've explored in depth in my own unpublished mm. memoir. Um, so, yeah, I was really curious about, you know, just by posing that question, did she get sick to protect her? Um, yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I don't, I don't think that, a, that you can get cancer to protect your sister. Good. I'm <laughs> relieved to hear you say that. Um, Very relieved to hear yeah, you say that. I really yeah. don't think you can do that. Um, mm. As much magical thinking as I used to have growing up, you know, draining the brain and because, again, with various religions, Catholicism but also Sufism and a couple of others, if they're, if they're read too literally, you can start to get really hung up on intentions in your own head and think that you're creating reality. And that's, mm, I think, dangerous. really, really dangerous mm. territory and dangerous magical thinking, um, which I have always been prone to. So that's, I think, the anxious mind, the overactive mind can, um, and the sort of spiritually inclined mind can kind of get a bit stuck in that space. And that's also... Sorry, I'm digressing. That's also why the book I'm writing now, which is nonfiction, and it is about spirituality, but it's about I'm kind of I, I really think spiritual literacy is is important um, so that you don't fall down those rabbit holes. Mm. Um, mm. Anyway. So. Great. Can't wait for that book to come out either. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I've got to keep going, keep working. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, okay. Sorry. So that's the answer to the first one. So with yeah. it. With the second one, I mean, in, in the eulogy, you examine intergenerational trauma and how repressed memories of trauma can subconsciously drive someone's 
life, you know, and the decisions they make and how they respond emotionally to things. And in the book, fairly early on, it starts with a flimsy fragment of a memory, which becomes kind of like the central mystery to be solved in the book in a way, like along with all the other threads. Mm. Um, so I, I just I, I can't avoid asking this question. Is, is that element, you know, the elephant in the room elephant, because we're not going to go into the detail of it, because that would be a spoiler, but is that fact or fiction? <laughs> Oh, I'm not going to answer that question, Kerry. Okay. Because, yeah, um, I'm not, I have, um, yeah, this is this is the type of question that friends actually ask as well, like, and close friends too. Mm. Like, um, if, and, but one of my friends had a really good approach, which was, if you haven't told me about this or it hasn't come up in our relationship, then, um, you know, Okay. Yeah. It's it's then I don't need to know about it. If if and when I do need to know about it, we'll talk about it then, presumably. And I was like, yeah, that's a really good approach. Um, yeah. 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 I, I'm so sorry. I, it's I just have, the hard nosed journalist in me asked that one. No, sorry. that's okay. No, and I do have to. Um, I do have to. It's it's an interesting one, but I think if you've written something like autofiction, you you do have to have a way of responding yes. to those questions because my natural way of responding would be like to tell you exactly oh, this and that and this. And that. Oh, but that was actually on the 29th of you know June, not the like, yeah. I would naturally just tell you, but I wrote it as autofiction purposefully, you yes. know, yeah, to um so that I don't have to answer those questions. Yeah, <laughs> I love that actually. That sort of um, helps me understand your decision as an author to do that even better. Thank you. <laughs> no worries. So this is a question that I'm sure you'll be very happy to answer. Um, in the book, Kathy fights the system which sees young people in aged care when they have um, when they need extra levels of care because the health system is so um, inadequate. Assuming I'm assuming that was also your experience, and do you hope the book will shine a light on this and result in some political change, or at least growing awareness of it, and you know perhaps support behind some changes to the way the system works? Yes, mm. <laughs> that's a really easy question. <laughs> yes, and um, when my sister was alive, um, yeah, we did have all sorts of battles on our hands trying to get her appropriate care. Um, the system in Australia is, is still very flawed, unfortunately, and people with high care needs like my sister do end up in aged care. And aged care is, I'm sure it's, you know, there's lots of good in aged care, but it's not the appropriate environment for someone who's not, you know, she wasn't even 40 years old when she was put in aged care and she very quickly lost function um, in aged care, which was very distressing for her and us to to kind of see happen. Mm. So we did have to do all sorts of lobbying and advocating and, you know, writing to politicians and writing to the media um, to get her appropriate care. You shouldn't have to do that. And it, it is a bit of a pyrrhic victory because, you know, you're just bumping someone else off the list essentially. Mm. Um, it's not that they suddenly add more resources. It's that, you know, you're taking a place from someone else who needs it just as much as your person. Um, so, so we did get her into a, a beautiful high care um, home with other young people for the last year or so of her life, and I'm really glad we did. Um, but, yes, I would definitely like to see young young high care properly resourced in Australia. It's, it's um, people with intellectual disabilities, people with high care needs are still quite invisible in Australia. 
Mm. Um, even though the, there's been amazing work done in the disability advocacy field, um, yeah, that, that's still, there's still a long way to go there until we treat people humanely who are humans. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. So um, my second last question is um, you, have, you wear, as I in, alluded to in the introduction, you wear many hats. And I'm just wondering, how is that going for you? And <laughs> especially after the book's release. Um, and, and do you, which would be your, I mean, it might be saying, like saying which of your children is your favourite child, but are any of those roles that you play, you, which one is your central passion, do you think, or do they all, are they all inextricably linked? Oh, um, I'd say... Yeah, because I have a 10-year-old daughter, I'm always playing this game, these games, you know. So Oh, yeah, and parent onto the... <laughs> you know, they're always, you know, she's always like, so of these three things, which would you pick, blah, blah, blah. Like if you're on a desert island, <laughs> so I have this game all the time and um, I'm pretty sure she has asked me this. So writing is my core vocation mm. and always, yeah, that's pretty core cool to just I wouldn't write if I didn't have to, and I think a lot of writers are like that because it's, you know, it's hard and it's not, it's not, I don't enjoy writing, um, but I am compelled to do it. So writing is my core vocation, and I think it's the core thing I have to offer. Like I think lots of people write better than me, but it's my, it's the one thing that I kind of hope to be able to hone over the remaining years of my life in, in service um, to something, to some sort of, something positive for for people and and um well you already have with a fabulous fabulous debut novel (laughs) um thank you so anyway so I'd say writing but um but they are very all linked together you know like the death work is um it feeds the writing and the writing feeds it I, I can I try and help people tell these stories and yeah and the spiritual service side of things I'm I feel like I'm fulfilling that through the writing and the funeral work. Um, so, yeah, it all feeds into each other. But, yeah, if, if I was on a desert island and I could only pick one job, <laughs> it would be writing. Um, none of them, even though writing doesn't pay the bills, so on a desert island I'd have to eat coconuts anyway, I guess, so that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely, thank you. And my final question, which is uh, the final question I ask all my guests on the show because I am compiling a farewell songs playlist on Spotify. And so I asked each of my guests to nominate a song that you would like played at your own funeral or wake or celebration of your life. Do you have a song that you can think of off the top of your head, the first thing that pops into your head? (laughs) Well, it's fairly unoriginal, um, but it would be Nick Cave's song, Into My Arms. Yeah, okay. Yes. Has been. I've heard that at a couple of funerals, and I've always loved that. Song. Yeah, 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 yeah. That it is a beautiful one, and it will make everybody cry, which is what you need at a funeral. You need something to push everyone over the edge, because that is the point. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and then, and then you wrap up with something a bit more cheerful, like you know, Monty Python or something. <laughs> <laughs> always look on the bright side. <laughs> yeah, yeah, something like that. Great. Thanks so much for joining me today on Death Walker's Guide to Life. Thanks, Gary. Take care.
You're listening to Death Walker's Guide to Life with Kerry Sunderland, and I've just been speaking with Jackie Bailey. And now it's time for Death on Screen, and today I'd like to talk about the Australian TV series The Beautiful Lie, which you can watch on Netflix on both sides of the Tasman. The Beautiful Lie is a modern-day reimagining of Tolstoy's Anna Karenina, produced by John Edwards and Imogen Banks. Australian actress Sarah Snook plays Anna, who is perhaps the contemporary Australian equivalent of a 19th-century Russian aristocrat, that is, a top tennis player. Screenwriter Alice Bell then substituted a music producer and DJ called Skeet, played by Benedict Samuel for Vronsky, the cavalry officer who in 1878 stole Anna's heart in Tolstoy's novel. The story begins with Anna finding out that her brother Kingsley has slept with the family's au pair. She immediately flies to the rescue. On her way home, Anna and Skeet meet at the airport in a variation on the two degrees of separation rule that seems to apply right across Australasia. On the flight, Anna starts chatting to the woman next to her, who is a stranger, who tells her about her son. They bump into each other again outside the terminal and her fellow passenger, who she now knows much more intimately, introduces her to her son, and that's Skeet. Minutes later, they witness someone being hit by a car. And in that moment, they are mutual witnesses of the fragility and the brevity of life. And in that instant, they fall spectacularly in love, which of course manifests itself as lust for the beginning and actually most of the series, but not all of it. It is this expression of how a sudden and unexpected death can, in a second, change the course of your life that interested me most and qualified this series for discussion here on Death Walker's Guide to Life. Anna falls hopelessly in love with the much younger Skeet. Meanwhile, her brother's wife, Dolly, is naturally angry with him about his infidelity, but she's willing to forgive. Their messy and often hilarious road to reconciliation serves as a mirror to Anna and Skeet's secretive one. So you might think that the the affair itself is the lie, but it turns out to be much more complex than that. Exploring the boundaries that blur between what one person might think is merely a misleading moment and another might think is a conscious and very deliberate intention to deceive. To what extent is lying by omission as potentially damaging as a straight-out lie? What about lying to ourselves? And what games do we play when we tell ourselves we're keeping secrets to protect others? I'm not going to tell you what the lie is at the heart of the series. That would be a spoiler. But I can share some insight into the title from the series director of photography, John Brawley, who writes on his blog... We all had different views of what the title, The Beautiful Lie, even meant in pre-production. It was fascinating to sit around the table in very early pre and hear everyone's version of what it meant to them. For me, the title refers to the bittersweet lie of love, the romantic ideal that we can have a soulmate out there who's destined for us, fated to be with us. When Anna follows her heart to be with the one she thinks is her true love, she pays the ultimate price. The story is timeless because the themes are timeless. The Beautiful Lie looks at the nature of love, the cost of love and its portrayal. We've come to the end of today's show. You've been listening to Death Walker's Guide to Life with Kerry Sunderland. Find out more about the show and catch up on previous episodes at deathwalkersguidetolife.com. Once again, Kamihi 
a big thank you to Tasman District Creative Community Scheme for supporting the show. Matiwa. See you next time. Fly away. Fly away. The podcast you just listened to was a live recording of a radio show, first broadcast on Fresh FM, the Top of the South's community access media station, with support from New Zealand On Air. The funding of Access Media makes these podcasts possible. To find similar programs by other community access media stations, go online to accessmedia.nz.